2: Hey, Fade to Gray family, this is Chris. Fade to Gray is brought to you by the wonderful members of our Patreon who have decided that they'd like to spend at least $1 a month supporting the podcast. You can help Fade to Gray continue to put out great quality episodes like the one you're about to listen to right now. Some of the benefits of joining our Patreon group are bonus episodes. For an example, we did a bonus episode with Matt Carter that many of you have never heard because you're not part of the Patreon. We'll drop you into our exclusive Marco Polo group where you can chat with all of us and many of our guests. Head on over to fadedegreypodcast.com and sign up to be part of our family today. Ladies
3: and
0: idiots,
2: this is the Fade to Grey Podcast.
3: Is there a God?
0: I do believe in Jesus and I do believe in God.
4: I just think religion fucks up everything.
2: You can't go there. Jesus deserves a better Christianity.
3: God was breathing. God was water. God was shoved down your throat.
0: We just don't know, and nobody wants to admit it.
4: Christianity is like autism. There's a wide
2: spectrum of it.
3: This changes everything.
2: Welcome back to another episode of Fade to Gray. This is Chris. On the roundtable today, we have Omar, Lena, and we are talking to a very special guest, A Fade to Gray favorite, Paul Matthew Harrison, who is the author of several books, uh, God Told Me to Marry You, which we talked about on his episode with us as episode five of Fade to Gray, if you ever want to go back and listen. Uh, Also authored uh, All the Clever Words on Pages and All the Clever Words on Pages, two. His most recent book, Deconversions, details his entire spiritual life, and we're very excited to talk to him today. Welcome, Paul Matthew Harrison. How are you doing? Paul. Oh, Thank you. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. Thank you. Hey. I'm excited. Am I your first
3: repeat You are guest?
4: not the first repeat. Oh, man. Well, I got to go. <laughs> you are definitely a friend yeah. of the podcast. I got things and to do. have helped shape the vision of really where we're going in the future. Like Chris mentioned, you were like our fifth episode or whatever, but we deleted our first four. So if you have yeah. to hear our first four before that, then you are an OG like original fader, You're lucky. so um, I did. But you really? <laughs> I did. I've been. I've been listening. Oh wow! So you are an original
2: fader. Oh, well, thank too. you. So Thank
3: you. <laughs> I went back and listened to those originals. Yeah, and I listened to a bunch after you guys had uh, Toby and Joey on, yeah. and that that Josh Wing episode was really oh, intense. It was great. Um, yeah, yeah. Lots of interesting stuff going but the on. Things you, that. you
4: discussed demo, you um, that. Yeah. really helped shape who we are today. I think. It really some of the things you brought out and the way that you just articulated your faith and your struggles and you know, you were at that point I had just written, um, God told me to marry you and you know, you really just told your story and got really yeah. vulnerable. And at the end of that episode and when it released, I was like it was so powerful and it resonated with I think all of us at the round table and as well as like a lot of people that like listened to that episode and it was like this is so important and needs to be done and we need to have a platform for these type of stories. So moving forward, um, mm-hmm. you know, hear a lot more of that type of content coming out of fade to gray as we're just fading into all these different issues. I'm super excited to hear about this book that you just released, I guess, but I was looking for it on Google. So is it released yet or is it going to be released? What's the story there?
3: Um, it's slated for June. That I have the last bit of proofreading happening now. The, the cover is being designed, so it's all set to go,
4: most likely right, uh, June. Right. Well, thanks for coming back, and I'm super excited about this episode, and buckle up, guys.
1: Okay, Paul, I'm so excited to talk to you in person. Well, I guess not in person. Yeah. <laughs> <Something like this. laughs> but okay, so I have I have a question I have to ask you. Um, So the last time that I heard you... You were talking about the Deconversions book and how it was going to be your whole memoir of your faith and your spiritual life. And, um, and then after that, that would be the end, the end of your ties with God. And so I have to know, have you had your Paul on the road to Damascus moment yet? <laughs> Has God revealed himself to you?
3: <laughs> no, I haven't. Oh, no. Well,
1: that is unfortunate.
3: I, I don't know if I should. I don't know if I should give away the end though, because uh, <laughs> then nobody will buy the book.
1: Okay. Well, there you go. I'll I'll let you have that then. I I apologize.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I yes, I found the truth, and I have to unleash it upon the world now. It's in the last chapter. Of that book.
4: <laughs> there you go. Great sales pitch. Great
2: sales yeah. <laughs> pitch.
3: <laughs> Everybody has to go buy
1: the book because the truth of life is in the last chapter.
3: No, I. If you want, I can give you the conclusion Digital. right now. Yeah. Well, I think, I think for me, there was, um, when I was a kid, there was a sense of something more or a sense of transcendence or the divine, something that causes you to seek. I mean, when, when you're 10, 11, 12 years old, you don't know anything about the world. So you're asking questions about everything and you're eager to learn. So you're sort of young and naive and you want to learn how everything in the world works. So that sense of the divine draws you into seeking out all these questions. Is there a God? Why did he make us? Why are we here? You start looking into world religions and philosophies, trying to find the answer. And I think for 40 years, it's a long way around of saying we have a lot of ideas and a lot of misgivings, but we just don't know. And as a Christian, that idea is uh God put that sense of divine in you so that you would seek him out and find him. I don't believe that anymore. I, I now look at my past as almost like a, an obsession with God in, a, in an unhealthy way that it stopped me from living any kind of a practical mm. life because I was so obsessed with these bigger questions, ultimate meanings and spiritual experiences that I, you know, all my family and friends just thought of me as in another world except for my Christian friends that encouraged it. And even when, when I became an atheist, it was like, oh, now here you go on all the atheist stuff. It was like, the the same zeal in the opposite direction. Can you just be normal and live? And I think when I finally wrote all this and got it out of my system, it was like the the sense of the divine was still there, and I could feel it more than ever. And so there's a it's an an eradical, uh, an ineradicable sense of there must be something more. I don't know if it's true or not, but it's uh, a sense that I can't do away with or get rid of. So that that idea of just letting the sense of the divine hum in the background as you go on with your practical life and and no longer on a huge search for answers where you're just delving into books and theologies and being preoccupied with that, it's been so freeing. So there's the peace in saying, I don't know, and then just letting that sense stay there, not trying to be an atheist and, and use reason to repress it and do away with it but also not using it to lead you into false religions and false beliefs and things we can't possibly know is true. So I have, I have more peace in my adult life than I ever have by just settling on stopping the search and just saying, we don't know. And that's, I love it,
2: Paul. In fact, your story, what you're saying right now resonates so much with how my faith ended up, which was, you know, there's no possible way of ever knowing if any of this is true while I'm alive. So, I'm just going to let the mystery be and and just yeah. appreciate it uh, for what it is. And I mean, no matter even if I have some sort of experience where I think God is speaking to me, which I know that you've you know fasted and prayed for years for that to happen. Um, I don't do that. But even if something were to happen like that, how would I ever even know if that's really God or not? So at this point, whenever yeah. I finally accepted that. I said, God, I just don't believe you're real anymore. It was like a a different kind of religious experience where a weight was lifted off my shoulders and I felt that peace. Uh, So, man, I really resonate with you on that. Um, You mentioned that you started out as a young boy just kind of wondering about these things. And I read in DeConversions because I have a copy. Uh, I read in DeConversions that... That started because your dad died and you were pondering where he was going to go. Can you tell us a little bit about how your uh, faith experience began?
3: Sure. I I want to back up one second, though, and say that what what Omar said at the beginning about Fade to Gray, letting people tell their stories, uh, like you said, we don't know. We can't be certain about what happens, but people have some pretty incredible things that happen to them, seemingly supernatural things, things that don't fit a specific religious or doctrinal context. So letting people tell their stories and just let it hang there, even within coherence and out of context is important. You know, I think people have to tell their stories even if they don't necessarily represent a specific religion or worldview, you yeah. know? So I, I think, I think what you're uh, doing we is We really great.
2: appreciate that, man. Um, and
4: on that, I want to piggyback off of something that Chris just said before you answer that question, me still finding my peace you know in the comfort of, of say jesus and still identifying with christianity and being okay with that i i felt it very compelling and, and interesting how you said at the end of deconversions how you originally thought okay i'm going to be done with my god search after this and you have a peace and not searching but it's you described it as a sense of the divine You described your peace as only i think that was the word yeah. you used um and i would And it's it's very interesting. It could probably be rival, probably the second piece that I can find in the comfort and the hope of of the story of Christ or the the person of Jesus, you know, or the the deity, whatever. I'm still in. Sure. um, That's interesting. It doesn't sound like the search is over, but it sounds like you're just kind of like at peace with like, okay, there might be a God here, but I don't have to try to find him. Or is that, I don't know.
3: Right. It's it's much less intense and it's still the feeling of being open to anything can happen. And I think too, when you're a Christian, the the idea is everybody else is lost and unsaved and on their way to hell and it's your job to give them the truth and open their eyes. There's almost a desperateness that you must be out, you know, molesting for a better <laughs> word. You must be upending everybody's lives, you know, by telling them what you're doing is wrong and you're lost and you need Jesus. You know that you're in a dire situation and i have to help you and then if i become an atheist it's oh no we've, we've all been deceived and i don't want to see all my christian friends get hurt and disillusioned like me so now it's my job to like spread richard dawkins to all my christian friends this whole idea of trying to help everyone or correct everyone now i think everybody is on their own journey so when people say things and i go well, i used to be there 10 years ago I don't now feel the need to jump in and say, here, let me lead you to what I learned and understood. It's more like, you know what, let that person be on their path. If if Jesus is speaking to someone in a Christian context, great, let let them stay in a fundamentalist, conservative, evangelical church that I've left behind, but that has changed their lives for the better. And, and who am I to go in there and and try to take that away from them? And if an atheist is a happy atheist, why? Yeah, as long as they're not <laughs> oppressing people. <laughs> yeah, which is a very general term. You know, Christians would say leaving the world unsaved is oppressive. Mm-hmm. You know, and that the 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 loving thing to do would be to go do everything you can to save them. But the idea now is that, is that you're not interfering with other people's headspace so much, or believing that you have to intervene in everybody's lives and share what you know. So when I write these memoirs, the the good thing about them is that they, they're misgivings, you know, they're, they're just honest views of what I've, what I've experienced. And I leave that out there for anybody who wants to read and discuss it. It's not that I feel like I have a burning message that I have to get to other people, you know, the the need to find a platform and change lives or something like that.
1: But you really do. I mean, you really have important Uh, things to say, but I'm really interested in your answer to Chris's question. So go back there, please.
3: (laughs) Yeah. My, um, my earliest memories, are are I was born in 1976. So my earliest memories are, are around the early 80s. And um, I remember my mom saying to me that my dad had liver cancer, and they did an operation that was successful, but it had spread to his lungs. So he had less than a year to live. And so my earliest memories are visiting him around Christmas time in 1983 and seeing him in pain. You know, he looked different. He was really thin. He couldn't hold his mouth open. Um, He had oxygen tanks behind him. So when my brother and I posed for pictures for Christmas with him, I remember telling my brother, be careful not to break Dad," because I thought he was brittle like a, a tree leaf, like you could break his arms off. And so I saw him in a lot of pain. And about a week later, he died. And my mom woke my brother and I up you know, um, crying. And while they were all crying, I wasn't, I was happy that he wasn't suffering anymore. And I couldn't understand why they were crying. So this is just before my, my eighth birthday. And I just thought, well, he's somewhere else now. And he's happy. He, he's not in this pain anymore. We'll see him again. He's in the spirit realm somewhere, you know, maybe heaven or something like that. But I don't know, how I got those ideas, you know, like there's Tom and Jerry cartoons with depictions of like people getting wings and floating up into heaven or going in down to a cauldron in hell or something like that. But I wasn't sad. And when I went to my dad's memorial service, um, I couldn't cry and I felt guilty. And so his sister, my aunt, said, well, you know, God, you know, he wouldn't want you to cry. So I remember seeing a picture of him next to a box of his ashes where he was cremated. And so I'm looking at a smiling face of somebody in his 20s. He was 30 when he died. And then I'm looking at this box of ashes and I'm thinking, okay, that's dad in that box, or at least those are his ashes. And then I looked around the room and I thought all of us turn to ashes. You know, you can look at a picture of like um, a world fair or a city from, you know, 1890. And you realize that all those buildings are leveled, that town is destroyed and built over, all those people and animals are dead. You know, it's a feeling that just everything in this world fades and is destroyed, but there must be something essential behind it that carries on. And I would see this later when I went to the Art Institute around 10 or 12 years old, and I looked at art and I saw transcendence in all this. So I just had this sense that there was a, a purpose to everything beyond the physical world and that there was an immaterial world that made it all worthwhile. And that sense seemed intuitive and not attached to any doctrine or theology at all. But given that I'd had experiences going to Catholic Church as a kid, I just asked my grandma for a Bible just to get started trying to understand if the Bible explained any of this or not.
4: Well, wow, that's super deep. I mean, it almost seems morbid um to a certain level and you know, as a kid just thinking well we're all it's all gonna be rubble anyway but but to find deeper meaning in that you know some people would just stop there and be like well then what's the point but then to be like well to, to find deeper meaning that's pretty incredible especially at early age i you know it, it wasn't morbid to me it was
3: hopeful that everything destroyed, everything ends up okay. Everyone ends up safe and okay on the other side because God is, is loving and restoring and watches over us. And somehow, one way or another, everything ends up okay for everybody. It's kind of a an intuitive universalism. You know, when I was first introduced to the idea that we're all sinners worthy to burn forever and we should feel guilty, I just thought, why? That doesn't make any sense, you know. But I'll go with it if that's, you know, the buy-in. So it wasn't morbid to me that everything faded and destroyed because I liked when I was at the Art Institute, I liked surrealism and I liked imagination and I liked the idea that maybe we can morph into whatever we want to look like, that there, that there are a billion planets and all of them are heavens and you can spend eternity experiencing everything in the world you couldn't experience here. What was morbid to me um, was evil and suffering in the world. It made me terrified of being alive here. So I explained in that same opening chapter of Deconversions that um, we saw the Challenger shuttle explode in class mm. and the teacher yeah. crying and the kids crying while we watched these people die in the sky. You know, and, and there was the I think the woman on that flight was a teacher. And that's why all the schools were watching, because we were proud to see this teacher go into space. And her daughter was scared, saying, Mommy, don't go. You're not going to come back. And now we thought that poor little girl. You know, her fears came true. Her mom died in that shuttle explosion. And soon after, I think it was the Ramstein Air Festival in Germany, two planes at the air show collided and then skated through the, mm-hmm. the crowd and killed all these people. I saw the news clip of that. A goalie named uh, Clint Malarchuk, who got his throat slit with a skate during a hockey game and the blood was spurting out of his neck and he almost died on the ice. So you see these things as a kid and then you wonder, why does this stuff happen? And it just so happens when I was about eight years old, I was at a friend's birthday party with little kids, and one of the drunk uncles put on a video called Faces of Death, which shows, so all of us little kids in our party hats are watching tortures and executions and suicides and animals getting slaughtered. That was disconcerting. It made me feel like life on earth and the physical world is a dangerous, terrible place, and I want to get out of here and go to heaven where it's safe. And that's framed my entire spiritual history of always looking for transcendence, always wanting to leave this world. You know, in in depression and sickness and illness, it was through suicide. Otherwise, it was going to be through becoming a monk and wanting to have these sort of lofty unions with God and mystical experiences. It's very hard for me to ever sort of feel at home in this world. So again, family and friends would complain like your head is always in the clouds, nothing is normal. You know, and these are things that just translate from my childhood right into my adult life and then how I express my Christianity. So one of the points yeah. in the deconversions book is that people don't just, you know, form their beliefs in a vacuum. They they come to us in our personalities and our temperaments and our, um, our cultural settings, our, our family settings. So I think like when you guys had Joey Spence on and he talks about Um, depression, well, imagine that universalism helps take away his depression and and the idea that he doesn't have to go out and save people and this makes him better in every other area of life. Well, then universalism is going to settle with him as something theologically that he should accept Where for someone else, it might not have that same effect. You know, they might view hell as essential to the gospel. And, uh, you know, so people's temperaments and personality types determine how they're going to express their faith. Even if the beliefs are the same, everybody has an idiosyncratic way of how they express
4: their beliefs. Yeah. Based on their makeup. What? Wow. How old were you yeah. then when you like ex- quote unquote accepted Christ or how old were you when you like, made that decision? You understood like the personal savior thing, like just curious because you said it wasn't was, like anyone taught you certain things and they were just impressions. Could that have been the Holy Spirit? I mean, could that have been, like, did you have a relationship with God at that point in your life?
3: When I was a kid, um, I visited a Catholic church, and I went to catechism classes with my brother. And I remember the Catholic church felt like a museum to me. You know, you'd go into the Art Institute, and you would see paintings from centuries back, and you'd feel this long history. I'd go into a Catholic church and be kind of taken into another world with the stained glass. There's icons of saints. And when I was a kid, I thought they were kings. Like, oh, maybe I can learn what who what kings those are, you know. Um, and, I, you know, based on the cartoons, I thought when you, you died, you became an angel. You know, you got wings and you flew into heaven. You know, good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. So I had a little bit of experience in the Catholic Church. And I remembered the televangelist scandals with um, Swaggart and Baker in the late 80s and Oral Roberts and how we always made fun of religious people on the religious channel like nobody ever watched the religious channel with the crazy televangelists. So um, I hit puberty and I was enamored with the beauty of women and wanted to have sex. And I remembered. Paul, the, I did too. You too? That's crazy. (laughs) Teens in puberty wanting to have sex.
1: (laughs) What a shocker.
3: (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so and I remembered because of those Swaggart and Baker scandals that they were sex scandals. And that so I had it in the back of my mind that Christians thought sex was evil or dirty or bad or that you shouldn't do it. And I thought of it as like a, a, a spiritual experience. I saw the movie cocoon in the eighties where the, uh, the, you know, the, the woman gets in the pool naked and her, her, her her energy shoots out of her body and lands on him. And he has this orgasmic experience. And he says, if this is foreplay, I'm in trouble, you know? And (laughs) so I had the sense that sex was like, you know, souls connecting and that you didn't even need a body to do it. And then I view bodies as like beautiful vehicles to bring out this transcendent experience. And of course this is idealized nudes at the art Institute. So I'm looking at beautiful models, you know what I mean? That, that inspire that. So to me, nudity wasn't evil. Masturbation wasn't evil. Um, orgasms weren't sex. None of that was evil preach. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to enter high school and I'm going to want to have sex. So what should I do? And I just made this decision like, well, I, I'm going to be in love. I'm going to make sure I care for the woman. And I'll be at least 16. I think that's old enough, you know, but after seeing those televangelist scandals, it was like, okay, well, does God think sex is bad? So I asked my grandma for a Bible to read through it and try to to figure that out. Came across Leviticus about not sleeping with donkeys and stuff like that. (laughs) I thought this isn't helping, you know, Um.
1: (laughs) good notes to have, though, for sure.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so my mom met someone and um, was about to marry him. And his, and so my in-laws, his, um, his brother and his brother's wife and a few others were born again Pentecostal Christians who were involved in ministry. And um, when they saw that I was seeking God and asking questions, I went over there Uh, For Thanksgiving in 1990 when I was 14 my freshman year of high school and I asked my aunt to help me understand What the Bible says and how to read it and what Christianity teaches and So that was the opening conversation maybe two hours long where she preached the whole gospel to me and asked me if I wanted to receive Jesus and start a relationship with him and in that conversation, she said, sex is beautiful and good, and God created it, but he wants you to have a oneness with your spouse and wait until marriage. So that's where that began, as well as the understanding that that we're all sinners who deserve hell, but Christ died for us. And we can give our lives to him, and we don't have to wait until we go to heaven to meet God. We can have a relationship with him right now. And so if you give your life to him, I mean, I'm 14. My whole life is ahead of me. Watch what he'll do with your life. I mean, right. you're, you're in for an exciting ride here. And I just thought, heck, yeah, let's do it. So we, I said the sinner's <laughs> prayer and got saved. And she said, happy
4: birthday and gave me a big hug. And now I'm born again. That's just crazy to me because the reason I was asking that, because you're telling the story about when you were like seven years old and, and saw your dad die, right? Yeah. And I was, you know, there was something in the back of my mind and probably some of the listeners as well. They're like, you know well, you know, God's working through that. And yeah, I feel like he was kind of your perspective, the things that you were, the way you were seeing the world, the, like the peace that you had, like seemed to be peace that you should get, you know, from, from a deity, you know, when you're going through a time like that and you're watching like the adults struggle with it a lot more than, than you. And so, um, that's where that question came from, but it wasn't until years later that you actually were introduced to like, like the person of Jesus or whatever. So I had, Zero to do with that. Sure.
3: And I'm tempted to say something universal here, like, well, maybe in the innocence of childhood, we all have an unblemished sense of the divine and on and on. But what if my dad molested me? What if I came from a poor family and my family was terrible and I hated him and I wished he wasn't alive somewhere else? And what if nothing felt good because of the way I was abused? You know, someone in that situation might have a completely different experience than mine going to their dead dad's funeral.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
3: Again, everybody's story is no matter how similar it sounds on the surface, it's idiosyncratic. Everybody has a different experience of their own lives And a lifetime is not enough to uncover and figure out all the things that make us tick. You know, like I can, I can rewrite my, I spent 10 years writing these, these four books. I can rewrite them in 10 years and probably come to completely different conclusions and uncover new things you know what I'm saying?
2: Yeah.
1: So it seems like a lot of the the thoughts, I mean, not to say you haven't grown or developed at all from childhood, but those those thoughts and the way you looked at the world back then seems to have carried over even to now. Just when you became a Christian, do you feel like you still felt that way and you had to I mean, I feel like that has to be kind of suppressed. That's something I always felt as a Christian, that those thoughts had to be suppressed because they didn't line up with what I was told I was supposed to believe or think. So did you hide them? Did you not feel them anymore? Were they still there?
3: They were still there. I I, um, struggled with Christian doctrine while I tried to understand it as a teen. You know, again, the whole idea of because you're imperfect, God can't be in the presence of sin. You can't go to heaven if you died tonight, why should he let you in? And I thought, why wouldn't he? He made me and he loves me. Like, why is heaven a reward for good people? And, you know, I've not raped or killed anybody. Why wouldn't I go in? Well, no, 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 no. You're born with original sin and and we're all deserving of hell. So when Jesus died on the cross, we put him there. We're murderers. We're responsible for that. And if Jesus would die for you in such a terrible way, and you ignore this. Well, what kind of an asshole would that make you? You know, so there's a sense of, wow, I'm guilty and I didn't even know it. And I killed someone and I didn't know it, you know, because I, I in deconversion, I explained too that we had a crucifix on our wall, my brother and I in our bedroom as kids. And I would look at it and see the stab wounds in his side and the crown of thorns. And I would think somebody like jumped this guy and just sadistically tortured him. And he was a good guy who didn't do anything wrong. And we had projects that lived around the block from us. When I'd walk to the store, they would chase me or throw bottles at me. I didn't even know them. You know, they were just mean kids looking for someone to beat up. And so I thought some bad guys just came and chased Jesus down and jumped him and did these terrible things to him. So the lesson when you look at the cross is be nice to people, don't be mean, or this is what results. You know, it was kind of a very simple thing. I didn't know anything about God needing a blood sacrifice to appease his anger and the atonement in and, and that we're all guilty of hell. So I didn't feel any real guilt or shame. I just thought, well, if that's how the story goes, I'll go along with it and I'll, I'll try to understand later. And so later when I lost my faith, I had some Reformed Calvinist Christians say, well, you were probably never saved to begin with because you never felt the convicting guilt that should have gone along with being a sinner. But
4: I'm fourteen years old. You know? <laughs> and it's such um, a hard sell too to, to try to tell a teenager or anybody to try to believe that like we're guilty of something that happened like centuries before we were alive or like like lifetimes yeah. ago.
3: And like, that you have I, nothing to do. Yeah, with. Now, and now you're gonna yeah.
4: you're gonna pay for that and burn forever. But it's like, well, why can't I reap some of the benefits of the good things that happened that people did? <laughs> like, why is like the ritual of sin have yeah. to be placed on me? I didn't do anything.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that whole unfairness of Adam and Eve fell, so we all deserve. A, yeah, none none of that made sense to me as a kid either. But I, I think becoming a Christian, I realized that Christians are taught to learn correct doctrine. Preach correct doctrine, say the right thing, and I don't think we really hear ourselves talk when we say certain things. I remember a basketball player a few years ago came out, and it was like he's a hero because he came out saying he was gay in a in a sub a sports subculture or a macho subculture. And some conservative Christian friends on Facebook just said, you know, it's a sad day when we call good evil and evil good and start celebrating sin. And then all the comments started to come in, you know, and these are friends of mine who who I care about and know very well, who are very loving people. But that comment section descended into, this is why hurricanes and natural disasters happen. This is why God sends judgment on our country. It's depraved and filthy, you know, oh, Jesus, come back, come back. And I thought, if I was a gay person reading this, you know what I mean? How would I... You guys are all scared that because I'm gay, I bring on natural disasters and curses on our country and that seeing me be gay is so sickening and depraved that you're begging Jesus to come back to to just end the gayness on earth, you know, where there's a utopia of just straight people who honor God's design. You know what I mean? And they (laughs) but they're not talking to gay people. They're talking to themselves. They're saying in a culture that denies God, I'm going to stand with God and his word. And so they're sort of just high-fiving each other. You know, We're still standing with God on this, but they're, they're toned after what this sounds like to other people. They're not listening to what this sounds like. So when you just riff because you've learned it and said it a hundred times, hey, we're all sinners going to hell because of original sin, and God says, you're just almost reading off of a Bible track. You're just spouting off doctrine. But if you just stop and think about it, you really think God wants to burn people in an inferno forever for not being perfect. That makes no sense.
2: Yeah. Because God's it, so it angry really that doesn't. he had
3: to kill his son on a cross to save us.
2: Or that God is so unpowerful that he created everyone with an intent, but then they went against his will. So then he had to come up with some sort of crazy plan to impregnate a woman and then kill that man in order to save everyone. Yeah. And I see the meme all the time. It's Jesus knocking at someone's door and he says, knock, knock, let me in. And the guy says, you know, no. Uh, And he says, well, I'm trying to save you. And the guy says, save me from what? And Jesus says, save you from what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. And it's just like this paradox that just seems so weird. And it's like, oh man, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Well,
3: I think god um, is responsible for everything if this is god's universe and he made everything he's responsible for anything i don't think god can be victimized by anything in his own universe but in the christian story if god made us all and predestines everything in a certain sense or allows everything to happen you know in by virtue of creating us i mean philosophically there's the question why would a perfect being need to create anything at all you know what would even move him to want anything given he's not a creature moved by anything outside of himself. So Mm -hmm. uh, he's not even a creature because that's a created thing. (laughs) See, we we lose any ability to make sense when we're talking about God. But the idea of God is a person (laughs) who wants something and makes something for a reason. I thought God was lonely and lived in a dark void. So let there be light. And then he made us because he wanted people to do things with because who wants to be alone Mm -hmm. their whole lives? So I thought God needed us. And so he was sort of a codependent lover. Please, please, please spend eternity with me. I won't force you. I won't make you. But in creating, he now puts himself into this experience of suffering. So when we're all saying, hey, we need hope out of suffering and pain and evil in this world, God is like, yeah, me too. Like, read the Bible. It seems like nobody (laughs) suffers more than God. He's frustrated. He's angry. You know what I mean? So it's like there's a sense where we're all screwed and we all can't get out of this. So there's almost no hope. It's like, well, God is with you when you suffer and he empathizes with you. And that's the best you could do you know, but he's not going to get you out of it. So,
2: and he's just as miserable as you are.
3: Right. But, but (laughs) don't worry somehow in the end, it's all going to work out, you know, (laughs) That, that hope springs eternal sense though, is hard to eradicate even if there's nothing rational to back it up. You know, I think it, it, it thrusts us through life. It helps us overcome anything, no matter how bad it seems to just have hope for its own sake. You know to move forward, mm-hmm. yeah. But but yeah, hope I, is
4: also contagious. Just like yeah, the the opposite sure. of hope would be too. So it's one of those things. is like just as I mean, wouldn't you say? Like it's interesting. Like having the the debate or the conversation about God a lot of times gets our eyes off of the individual and onto some sort of like whether God's there or not. And we start having debate yeah. on like who's right and who's wrong over things that like really nobody knows. We really we lose yeah. the sight of like humanity, which we all are living.
3: Yeah, I mean, the opposite of hope, I think, would be despair. And despair is sort of dying before you're physically dead. Your, your spirit's dead. Your soul's dead. You can't find strength to carry on. That causes stress on your nervous system. That breaks down your immune system, your, your physical body. You're just in pain and misery, where even false hope can come in and raise you out of that and heal you. That's why the. the but the you almost sickest fall harder though, with false hope, right? Maybe. I don't know. Absolutely. Because
4: eventually, is that hope's going to, you know, is the bottom's going to drop out, and then where are you going to land?
3: Yeah. Well, this is why atheists think that it is evil and immoral of religious people in general to prey upon the weakest and sickest and most desperate in the world by promising them things they can't possibly know are true Mm -hmm. whether you're a faith healer taking advantage of sick people or a televangelist trying to get their money or just telling everyone you know suffer through this world and a paradise awaits in the end um atheists view that as cruel and mean to do to the most desperate people let them be stoic and accept reality on its own terms uh, without any false hopes um and i took that position when i became an atheist later But then I realized more than 90% of the human race I don't think is capable of just being a stoic atheist and getting through life with no hope and something more. So the more I tried to bolster my atheism, the more belief in God and hope rose next to it, trying to outgrow it and overpower it. So there is no way for me to eradicate my sense that God is real and that everything is okay in the end, even if it's not true. So I try to give catharsis to that.
2: Do you think that religious trauma has hardwired your brain to always think that? Or do you think it's because, you know, like you said earlier, you were kind of born into pain, seeing your dad so fragile and weak, you really wanted there to be everything to be all right in the end. And then living now uh, with fibromyalgia and being in pain all the time, you know, that is what maybe wires your brain in a way to make you want to always believe that everything's going to be okay in the end. Like what is it that you just can't let go of there?
3: It doesn't let go of me. It it arises without my permission and then I can't do away with it. It's just there. So we can say I'm conditioned for it, or we can say maybe human brains are, are evolved to create false hopes and delusions to get us through hard times. But being disabled with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia from the age of sixteen—that um, you know—that's a theme in all of these memoirs that I wrote. Is they're they're a record of my failure in life to do anything I wanted to do. It's failure at relationships, failure to find a career, failure to get healthy, failure to find God. You know, just everything I could do, the bottom falling out and hitting a reset button. So it seems like a long, futile life of not being able to find any lightness or joy. And in those moments of pain and hopelessness where you have something that's incurable and doctors tell you there's nothing you can do and you watch your life pass you by, you know, you wake up and you're 43 years old and you're still single and jobless and all the rest. It's hard to accept. But if I lay there and just say, you know what, though, when I die, I'm going to go to a better place and I'm going to do all the living I want. it it immediately makes this experience easier and it's not something I I have to talk myself into. It's something that arises and then I Mm. could just tamper that with doubt and just go, ah, I'm bullshitting myself. I'll bet, but who cares? (laughs) I mean, what's it hurt to, to believe that everything (laughs) turns out okay in the end, if that helps me be a better person in this life, you know? So I just let that be. And if someone else doesn't have that experience, I think of, um, Sam Harris, who, in one of his books, he talked about the tsunami in two thousand four and two thousand and five that killed over a hundred thousand people and and Katrina and he said, "What can we think but that these people you know drowned talking to an imaginary friend and that children were just casually you know drowned in their cribs and on and on um and yet the statistics showed that churches and and synagogues and mosques filled all over the world after that tragedy, so he said. How much more evidence could you possibly have that there is no God watching out for you in this world? And so you need to accept death. You need to grieve dead loved ones. And you have to stop swaddling life with this comfort that somehow God is there and everything's okay and that this isn't really a tragedy. And I just, as hard as I tried for years to be that stoic and rational about the real world, I couldn't. And I tried every way possible. So in writing Deconversions, the, the question for me was, why? Why is it that the more I agree with atheism rationally, the more belief grows alongside it? And am I always going to be torn between these two worlds? And do I have to choose one or the other? Or is there a way to live uh, a, a good life on earth and let these beliefs just arise and have their place in me without trying to fight them? You know?
2: Yeah. You talked about having a life of pain earlier but Omar was actually talking about how your life looks really good through social media. Omar do you want to ask him about that? Yeah, I was
4: it was crazy cuz you're you're sitting here you know, talking, getting emotional about, you know, your situation, you know, your fibromyalgia, not having work. And, but I'm like, man, the grass is always greener. Yeah. Like on the other side. Cause, cause I'm, I'm looking at your Facebook, your social media accounts, looking at food porn that you're posting. Yeah. These beautiful <laughs> sunsets. You're traveling to all these great places and experiencing all these things. And yeah. I'm like, God, that must be nice. You know, like, and like I'm living vicariously through, like, you know, your pictures, which I mean, you also are, if you guys haven't followed, you know, put my page on Facebook or Twitter, do so um because you
2: know, why do you always have, have to call him paul matthew harrison I okay I he's like a
3: friend of the podcast i use my middle name can i, can I go like books?
4: pmw or... yeah
3: no i i've my middle name in the books. i put paul matthew harrison on the books because it's it makes me sound more like a, an author I'll just call you paul from now on i guess <laughs> that's right i think paul matthew harrison is my facebook too yeah there are so many paul harrison's writing and doing art and i'm like oh i gotta stand out so i'll use my middle
2: name yeah well you are an author you've written four books so yeah you don't need to you don't need to seem like an author
3: Well, I finished writing that book last year and it was pretty stressful to write like any of these books are when you're revisiting these things. I have friends that live in Florida so they invited me to come stay with them for a few months and Snowbird and the idea is to try to get used to light and fun things because my head is always in such a heavy space whether you're dealing with pain or depression or fatigue or You know, uh, the things that I'm writing about. So there's a lot of um, loneliness and struggling. And and so to go visit friends and stay with Uh them and have a bit of a social life. You know, if I go to the pool and I take video or picture of a pool and post it, I'm not necessarily swimming that day or even in swim trunks. You know, I'm sitting there with a book reading because I was able to get out of the house for a couple of hours. You know, and then I'd go back home and nap because I'm in so much pain. Um, mm. My friends would would go out to eat and invite me with them. And I try not to get car sick on the way to the restaurant. When I'm there, I'll take pictures of the food or sitting with my friends at the table and I'll post it. Um, but then when we get home again, I'm in pain and I have to sleep. So all the things I'm taking pictures of and doing are, are their attempts to share with the world anything good, light, happy or fun that I'm doing it's not arguing politics it's not posting about atheism and christianity and all these things
4: i just want to share whatever is good yeah and you do that very well you're spreading hope you know it's one of those things that's like it's, one of, it's like i got it's like i got to go there and try that cuz i'm a foodie oh, so that's yeah. the biggest thing for me is like the food porn you post so.
3: well i you know i i sometimes help out at a burger restaurant in town and i get half off of those meals so Rather than buying groceries, I just go down there and I eat a half-off meal, and I'll take a picture of the food. So again, it looks like I'm living it up, but just like anything on Instagram or Facebook, you know, you don't see what people go through all day long. I mean, I had a friend who who um, went to go visit Toby Morell and and Aaron Lunsford and posted pictures of him and his family enjoying a barbecue with those guys, and he said, "I didn't show you all the arguing in the car with the kids on the way over," and. Everything else, you just think, oh, cool. People are hanging out with Toby and Aaron Lunsford, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: So, it's, yeah, like anything, uh, being online is an image. And this is why I got off of Facebook because I thought I would post all of these things and who do I care is looking at them. And do I want to argue or bicker with every everybody, you know, that has something to say on a post? Every time I would get on, it was somebody posting something they were angry about or being an activist about and there's so much noise and I thought if I just turn
4: all this off yeah
3: and these are and it's an impression you get through social media that if you were sitting with that person in real life they're probably not that angry at all but it's just like you know trump this asshole again i swear to god (laughs) you know what i mean and it's just just all day long yeah it's like wow do you just hate trump all day long and it's like no but they do on social media you have to have an
4: opinion too like one way or the other and if you don't agree with what's being said right then then you're automatically on the other side and it's just like no
3: yeah i just have my own there's no room for nuance
2: yeah and the funny thing is is if you ask them what they hate about trump they can't really tell you they'll just say oh he's a racist or oh he's a sexist You know, sure. He says, that's so all they can tell It makes you. it
4: easier. Yeah, he, he
2: makes it easy <laughs> on people to hate him. I mean, just, I agree. I think he's a piece of shit. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> yeah, I but to see
3: any type, any kind of that. Is it so
4: okay to call people pieces of shit nowadays? Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well,
3: we're in the Trump climate, so
4: he started it. <laughs> 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 Oh, man. but, but I just yeah. I just wanted to thank you, though, for how you do use your social medias and say it is working in your approach, like even though you, you're not maybe feeling it and getting the responses and the likes and people are maybe, maybe commenting on it. I just want to tell you just face to face right now. Just keep doing it. Like if oh, ever thank see another you. Beautiful sunset. You're in another beautiful place. Just know that like I'm on the other side being like, I wish I was with Paul right now. Yeah, dude. <laughs> hey, man, come visit anytime. We'll get some burgers.
2: Are you still in the Chicago area as of right now? Yeah.
3: I'm in Galena gotcha. which is about 3 hours outside of Chicago. It's a small town on gotcha. the border of uh, Wisconsin, Illinois and um Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Um but the um now that I'm finished writing these books I've sort of switched gears and got all the art supplies out. So it is Ooh. it it uh, like Lena was saying earlier it is like a return to childhood. I feel like at 14 my life was hijacked by becoming born again and being taught that the end of the world would probably be by the year 2000. You know, I was reading Hal Lindsey and Grant Jeffrey and I got to save souls. And and my mom said, you lost all of your joy. You stopped doing art. You stopped collecting baseball cards. You threw away your secular music. You're watching televangelists. Like, And then from then on, my whole (laughs) life has been this heavy, serious, you know, one thing after another. And now I kind of feel almost retired. Like, okay, I'm going to go back to doing what I enjoyed doing when I was a kid. So in some ways I feel like I was in Arrested Development and now I'm coming out of high school at 43 and I get to start enjoying my life. So a lot more um, artwork and lighter things that will be posted throughout the year rather than kind of heavy, deep things, you know. I absolutely love it. I love that you
1: said that too because, I feel like I described myself the other day as more wild and rebellious than I've ever been in my whole life. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I really think it is that. I think I'm like back to this place where I'm becoming who I really am. Like I'm coming out of something else that kind of hid me for a little while. So I like the way you talked about kind of going back to the childhood thing. I'm excited to see your art. That'll be awesome.
3: Oh, thank you. Yeah, we, we've been we've been taught that our lives are not our own. Our thoughts should be subjugated to the word of God. Our libido should be subjugated. That The Holy Spirit should take over our libido. You know, our, You know, your life is not your own. Your body is not your own. Your thoughts and feelings are all invalidated. You have to serve a higher purpose. Anything you do that doesn't have God first is idolatry. So if you're great at basketball, maybe you should put that away for a year and see what God wants you to do. You're not allowed to develop your own thoughts and feelings, because that's pride and arrogance. All you can do is submit to the word of God and live for him. So when you sort of deconvert or lose your faith or take your life back, there's this sense of going, well, who am I? And what do I like? And what is okay? And then trying to feel that in your body and in your nervous system while you're doing it. So you have people from the purity culture who get married and even a decade into their marriage have a hard time feeling like it's okay having sex. Because yeah. though intellectually they know it's okay, they can't change their nervous system to feel that it's okay. So a lot of that deconversion where people go, hey, don't you know better intellectually that you shouldn't go back to that stuff? But your nervous system is wired in a way that it's very hard to undo what it's been conditioned for. So sometimes, you, you know, you go through cycles and you experiment and you try to find out who you are and what your thoughts and feelings are. It is a lot like feeling like a teen trying to find your identity again you know
1: it's like i'm in my rum springer
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh man so basically it's all uh, like booze and hooking
4: up and <laughs> for a Not week. quite that. Yeah. Not <laughs> quite that intense, but yeah. <laughs> so Paul, it, for you, it almost is like you went through two deconversions. It sounds like he's like, you yeah. did the deconversion from Christianity and you've also de-conver- deconverted from atheism. And so, and what I'm hearing now is it after the being reborn, 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 that, it's that there is life after and peace after in a sense of the divine in your post deconversion life now,
3: there is, but again that's that's idiosyncratic to me and where I am. I can't say it would be the same for anyone else, and I don't know how I'll be in a year from now, you know, who sure. knows what new thing will come along. This is just where I am now, but the reason I would be- love to have you come back and tell us about it <laughs> <laughs> that's fun no i the reason um I pluralized deconversions is because nobody comes to a belief system for a single reason or stays in a belief system as is. You tweak your theology. You might try different subcultures or different movements within a belief system. Then you might leave that belief system and try something else. So mine is a lifetime of, you know, a, a born again, evangelical, fundamentalist, Pentecostal Christian who is, Reading Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel, a young earth creationist who believes the world is going to end at any moment, you know, that the Bible is inerrant. After going through all my doubts after high school, I became an agnostic. And I wrote a paper called Anathema and passed it out to my church, saying, here's the reasons that I can't believe anymore. Can anybody answer this? And nobody could, but I got all the, the typical answers. You need to have faith. Heart knowledge is more important than head knowledge, all of that. Um, But then I started to have encounters with God and gave my life back to him. But it's different this time around. This is the period of hearing God's voice, believing God wanted me to marry a woman, getting prophetic words from people, being introduced to the dark night of the soul and hearing God's voice and all this. And when that all failed spectacularly, I'm left trying to pick up the pieces again. So here I encounter Brian McLaren, the Emergent Church, deconstructing Christians, Seeing if there's anything there, when there's not much there, I can find, I end up an atheist and, and right at the time the new atheists begin writing. so I begin moving in that direction, reading those works. So I'm showing how it's it's not a simple conversion deconversion. your whole life, you're being moved along by whatever experiences or ideas are bringing you in into like the purview of new authors. Um, you know it's just it's like a long journey or a long spiritual work but you guys had a guest on a few episodes back who's i can't remember who it was but he said it was hard not to feel like he'd wasted his whole life on this and so there's a sense in which i i came in at, i think that was luke i think yeah. yeah i think so yeah and that resonated with me where i felt like well, i came in at 14 when all this was introduced to me and i thought as the years go on i would know god better you know, you read books on spiritual warfare so that you could get better at prayer and spiritual warfare and see results. Um, you know, that as you read and study theology, you would understand God better. And, you know, you you think there's sort of like graduating and growing. And it ends up all it was, was the runaround and, and false leads into faith healers and fake prophets and uh, young earth creationism, then progressive creationism, then intelligent design, then theistic evolution. They're just going all over the place, finding that every time you try to make something true, you're running into something that ends up being false. And after you know 30 years of this and your routine in adult life to end up still going, that all was just a cloud of noise it, that didn't take me anywhere. I'm no more closer to the answer now at 43 than I was at 14. So it's easy to get resentful and go, what a waste of time. But skeptics and atheists have never given me this runaround. So they've always been the safest place for me in helping me understand how the world works in a a stable, normal way. The problem with me is belief rises without permission that I can't suppress and that atheism is unlivable and hopeless to me. So I particularly have found it impossible to be a happy atheist or enjoy being an atheist, even though I agree mostly with what they're saying. So against all odds, I hold out this hope that they're wrong. And that's where I get really um, excited about people's stories when they say like, Jesus visited me in my bedroom and predicted this thing. And then it happened. And I'm like, yeah, 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 it's true. It's true. It's got to be, you know,
2: like I'm (laughs) hooked by those, those testimonies. You know, everything in me wants that to be true. Well, I hear what you're saying, Paul. And, you know, what I do hear you saying is that it's okay if you don't know the answers. It's okay if you've converted and deconverted and converted and deconverted. You're never going to know the answer. So just enjoy the mystery. Is that kind of what I hear you saying? Yes. I, you don't even have to enjoy it, you just acknowledge it.
3: <laughs> And this is something where in in DeConversions, I go through my my stop with the Emergent Church when I was enamored with Brian McLaren and um, Tony Jones and and Rob Bell and Donald Miller. And like all those guys were really popular around 2005-ish when this was going on. And I thought, well, maybe there's something they can offer me here. And there was a lot of that. God is wild and mysterious and untamable. And Christianity is a faith journey that's not about the answers. And so there, you're always like a wandering journeyman. In a, nothing is stable or solid. And so the critiques of the Emergent Church that I read was Becoming Conversant with the Emergent Church by D.A. Carson and another one called um, Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be by Kevin DeYoung and <laughs> Ted Kluck. And they're they're both Reformed Christians. So their main critique of the Emergent Church was you can't live in this wishy-washy, mysterious doubtful it, it doesn't give you anything to motivate you through life so they reassert their certainty you can stand on the sure word of god you can know that christ is the only way to god you know emergent and deconstructing christians like um, richard Rohr and peter Ens and guys like this they all need to come back to the bible which is very clear universalism is false there is a hell jesus is the only way homosexuality is evil You know, on and on and on it goes. Doctrine and theology is important. You can know God's word and what he says. All these interpretive schemes and mysteries and nonsense is just evasiveness because you don't like what God has to say in his word. So they reassert this sort of, um, this seductive certainty. If you want rock solid certainty and answers, we got it and God gave it to us and we know it. So all you got to do is rededicate your life to Christ stop being immature, stop following around these teachers who are wishy-washy and bring you into silly, mysterious, nebulous nonsense, you know, get right with God. And so there's an allure to that too. But I thought their critiques of, of the emergent Church and Deconstructing Christians was good. Um, but I also thought that the critique of the certainty fundamentalists have is good. So I just viewed both camps as wrong. And then I moved right on to the new atheists <laughs> who said, it's all bullshit, just accept the world without any of this stuff. And I thought,
2: all right, <laughs> let's give
3: that a shot. And it didn't let me down, but yeah.
2: In the context of what you're saying now about having gone through your faith journey, I do remember one part in your book, uh, Deconversions, where you prayed to God. You said, Promise to never let me go no matter what happens. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that covenant is what keeps you? in the the state that you're in where you think that god is consistently pursuing you and if that's the case uh do you regret praying that prayer
3: i don't think he's persistently pursuing me i think he consistently ignores me i think the the years and years and years of praying and getting no answer just affirms for me that atheists are right there's no one there
2: but you have some sort of calling inside you to still believe and to still want to oh, yeah. search out those things. Yeah. So I guess my question would be like, do you think that when you prayed that prayer to God, that was a covenant you made in your brain that has kept you in this persistent state of, I guess, not hearing from God, but wanting it? Um, no, I I
3: think I think I prayed that prayer out of fear or insecurity. You know, there were moments where I go, I don't know if any of this is true. And then I would sense God's presence in some mystical way or believe I had answered prayer. Then I go, okay, it is true. It is true. And then something else would happen that didn't work out. You know, so I'm a teen trying to figure this out. And the moments that I was most certain, I just thought, how do I keep this feeling of certainty? So I'd say, Lord, even though I doubt sometimes, just don't let me go. In these moments, I know you're real. I know you're real. So hold on to me, no matter what. It was a, it was a prayer to um, you know not want to end up lost. It was like a, an insecurity. I, I think the idea that God is still there comes from when I was an agnostic and I didn't believe I had those mystical encounters that I describe. I mean, I describe them in deconversions, but they're in more detail. And God told me to marry you. You know, the times that I had these encounters that were just so powerful, as an agnostic, it just stops you in your day. So even when I was writing God's to, to Marry You at my friend's house in Florida, I, I'd say, I still feel like tonight's the night Jesus will just appear in my bedroom and turn everything upside down, and I will have been all wrong about this atheism. You know, there's that feeling of at any point in time, this can upend me and turn me upside down. Uh, but it, but that that feeling isn't a result of that prayer, no. It's a result of having okay. experienced something like that in the past. Right. Yeah. Right. I wonder if it's like somebody who is with an abusive spouse, who most of the time they're good <laughs> and then every, and then every now and then you get the back of their hand and you never know when it's coming,
2: but they just feel like it's always coming.
3: <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> I thought you were going to relate that to being in an abusive relationship of neglect where you so want the approval of God, but then you never get it. You never hear his voice again. He gives you a taste You know, you get those few years, like you mentioned Mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, God told me to marry you, which by the way, uh, if you want to hear more about Paul's story, he's got some incredible experiences with what he believes to be God. And you can hear about that in episode five. Or better, even, you can go and buy God Told Me to Marry You, which, by the way, Omar promised to read that the last time you were on. Uh-huh. And I wonder, Omar, did you ever buy that book? <laughs> See, I thought I was going to get away with you not
4: asking because we did it earlier. So. <laughs> uh, here's the thing I actually was going to jump on and buy it on Amazon right before this oh, meeting man. so I could say yes to that question. And then I, That's I Amazon promised. Anymore, and the <laughs> the shipping was going to be more than if I would just bought two books. Really? So um, I was wait. I'm going to wait until deconversions come out, and that way I can get both of them at the same time. I forget. That's I forget. No, but seriously, <laughs> but seriously though, are you Omar? You I'm, you would have related to? Honest, I'm not a reader. Yeah. So like, I, I need it on audiobook. Basically, yeah. like if I buy the book and call you, will you read it to me? I'll read it to you. <laughs> I'll read it to you. <laughs>
3: A glass of milk and cookies before bed.
4: That sounds great.
3: <laughs> you would you would relate to this the most though, because of your experiences yeah. in Pentecostalism. I think.
4: Yeah, I'm excited. I, I look, looked at the chapters, and there's the Benny Hinn chapter, and yeah, I guess that was like pretty compelled you further into the whole Pentecostal thing. And I'm definitely I was joking, but I'm I'm serious. I do. Oh yeah. Um, when I, I I said I was going to buy it, and I'm big on my word, so I'm going to. But I'm I'll get them both at the same time.
2: Thank you. Paul, I have a quick question. Um, it, after our interview with you the last time about God told me to marry you, um, we're such a big podcast. I want to know how did that affect your book sales? How many books did you sell after that? Um, I Probably <laughs> five total If that.
1: Half our listeners bought it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you're saying we're not as big as we think we are. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I remember
3: when I wrote um, – I wrote an early version of All the Clever Words on Pages in 2007, and Doug Fenpelt did a review on it in HM Magazine. And a few months later, he wrote to me and he said, So, how many sold as a result of that? And, and no book had sold since. Probably nobody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Being exposed to a lot of so people. We're better doing...
4: than HM Magazine then. That's right. <laughs> That's right.
3: Yeah. I mean, obviously I being, <laughs> and I used to have this worry too, like I wanted to get God's going to marry you on BC words. And I didn't have a platform for this because it was, it wasn't fit for the Christian community and people outside of the Christian community wouldn't care about a book on Christian dating. So I'm like, bad Christian is the only place that this will fit. And so I talked to Toby and they considered it and I wanted to get on the bad Christian podcast to talk about it. And I had this sort of like insecurity about, man, I need a platform. I need to get this out there. People need to read this and, you know, it needs to sell. And it kind of cured me of that. You know, you you could get on something like Bad Christian and talk about your book and not get any sales or not get anyone who pays attention to you. So I just thought this need to always be anxious about a platform or anxious to, to I mean, you just imagine, oh, if I could get on Bad Christian I'll get speaking engagements and people will want to buy my book. You know, you just think you'll become somebody. And then I realized I didn't even want that. I don't even enjoy talking about this stuff. I write it and then I want to move on from it. And so getting caught up in theological debates with people and it's not really what I want to do. I don't want to be a writer
4: and have a platform and be known for something, you know. Yeah, but your experiences and things you went through definitely seems like you like. I almost disagree. Almost like you need a platform, and I and I would like to give you one, and, and would recommend like the things that you've gone through and the way you articulate um all the different deconversions that you've been through Um is something that a lot of people can relate to and need to hear. So I I, I would encourage you to continue to seek. I know it, it's not fun and it's exhausting no. for sure yeah. to have the same conversation every day.
3: When I wrote, I, I wrote an autobiography for myself in 2005 when I was living in my car after being disillusioned, and that was for me, just to follow my own path and go, how did I end up here? And then I just started to add to that over the years. And then I thought, I probably got three marketable books I can, I can make out of the story that would be beneficial to other people. So at that time, I thought, well, I'm writing for other people. You know, there, there are plenty of Me Without You fans who would love to peer in on my conversations with Aaron Weiss and, you know, and, and the things he did for me and the, and the uh, conversations we had. So I thought that one's definitely marketable. And it was when the band put that in their web store and I got a platform that sold over a thousand copies almost immediately. So that shocked me as a self-published, no-name author. But then, with God's going to marry you, like the crossover was none. Like, no Me Without You fans were interested in that book. So, I sold maybe 20 total of that book. And now, with deconversions, I have no thought of sales at all. I realized how much healing I was getting from writing these books. And so, I decided I'm writing these books for me and to complete a project. You know, I'm funding my own project and completing it so that I have the satisfaction of saying I wrote them. And that the fact that other people can get something out of them is good, but I'm not writing with the illusion that I'm trying to help anybody anymore. So yeah. I had the goal of writing three books and I wrote three books and an appendix to all the clever words on pages. So this is all I really have in me. This is my last book. And so all those books working together to tell the story and then I just offer it to whoever's interested in it. I really don't have a burning message that I have to get in front of people. You know, this is all stuff that's been said a million times, even better than me by other people. It's just my unique story that I'm offering, you know?
2: Well, I think your unique story is definitely worth hearing. I highly recommend that people go out. See, I started out with all the clever words on pages. Um, I did eventually get to read God told me to marry you and... Uh, most recently, I haven't finished it yet, but I am working on deconversions. I have not read the appendix uh, to all the clever words yet, um, but I do plan on it. Paul, your writing is incredible. Your story really relates to so many people. Um, I told you last time on the podcast, and you seem surprised that I really resonated with your story and really gained a lot out of it. Yeah, uh, It helped me get through some shit uh, with my faith, and so I really appreciate your work. I'm actually kind of sad to hear that this is your last book, even if it, you know, weren't something related to faith. I appreciate your writing. I think you're damn good at it. Whenever uh, Deconversions comes out in June, I, I just want, you know, everyone that might be listening right now, if you're going through any sort of deconstruction, or if you're on the other side of any sort of deconstruction, or maybe you're at the beginning and you don't really know what's going on, but you know, something's not quite right with your faith. I would highly recommend uh, picking up a copy of Paul's book, Deconversions. It's a good place to start. Um, And you're definitely going to uh, relate to his story and you're definitely going to uh, get something out of it. And it'll probably help you get through your shit as well. Um, Paul, I think it's uh about time to wrap up but I really appreciate you coming back on our podcast. This is your second time around. I hope it's not your last time. Um you are an incredible guy. You're an inspirational guy. You probably don't want to hear that if you're like me, but I uh, just you know want to geek out a little bit on you and tell you how much I appreciate you, man. Thank you're you. You're
4: on Instagram and I am. and Facebook. Are you on Twitter as well?
3: Yeah, but I hardly use it, but I'm there. Okay. I don't use any yeah. of this stuff really, but I'm there. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Looking forward to seeing some of your art in the coming uh, weeks and months. And yeah. obviously, the yeah. pictures, food porn, all this stuff. Keep it coming. I'll be putting so together an you, art
3: book this year called Mostly Seascapes, but also Mostly Naked Women.
4: It's just seascapes <laughs> and naked women. Ooh, that, that's perfect. That, that was so, um, about, that's a sea nice cognizable seas- awesome.
3: book. Seas- seascapes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like waves and clouds. Seascapes. <laughs> Oh, i was thinking like i was thinking like dick prints and Panda no like so, no <laughs>
4: yeah, the book is like a letter Seascapes. So. no the, the book is called some seascapes no god <laughs> <laughs> so anyway so Paul, um you, you're amazing i know last time um you were on we had you and marco polo for a little bit yeah um, i know that's exa- exhausting you're an amazing guest to have there hopefully uh once this episode release maybe we can just for like a week Come and answer some questions, anybody that wants to like maybe get to know you, know how they can like support you or see some of your seascape, seascape. Yeah, that'd be fun. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. To remember, uh, this will be out in October. Some seascapes, but mostly naked women. Nice. By Paul Matthew Harrison. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> love you, man. Take, take care and uh, definitely stay healthy, man. Seriously. It's good talking to you guys.